0: Thanks for listening and sharing Our Body Politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Today we're talking to a Cuban American political influencer about being a Trump campaign surrogate and what conservatism means to her. Bertika Cabrera-Morris is a Cuban-born conservative businesswoman based in Orlando. She's volunteered for many Republican presidential campaigns over the years, including former President Donald Trump's. In fact, in 2020, she was a board member of the campaign organization Latinos for Trump. I'm pleased to welcome her to the show. Bertika, thanks for being here on Our Body Politic.
1: Thank you, Farai. Nice to be with you.
0: Yes, yes. I really appreciate your time. And, and I want just to start with the beginning, which is the story about how you became a Republican. Can you let us know?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm a Cuban-born person, American by choice. Came through Cuba, through Spain, and uh, went to live in California. I started going to college after uh, I was of age and I was able to become an American citizen. They asked me, when I went to register to vote, what I was. I said, what I do know is that I have a lot in common with who my governor is. And my governor name was Ronald Reagan. So they said, well, he's mm-hmm. a Republican. And I said, well, that's what I am. And I've never looked back since.
0: And so what does being a Republican mean to you in terms of your values or, or your political choices?
1: Well, I think that... Um, Me as a Hispanic woman, or the Hispanic descent, there are three things that are very important in my life. Number one is uh, jobs, and the opportunity to work, uh, a group of people that encourages small business, uh, less government. Number two, it's very important for me, the security of the country. Because where I came from, uh, the security is a big deal. I'm a mom of five kids. And I, you know, it worries me. Uh, I need to have a strong leader. And number three, I think very importantly for me is life and that a baby is conceived and is alive at that time. I think that you can be a Democrat or a Republican and believe in that, but it seems like it's more of a conservative uh, belief than there is of a liberal one.
0: And so how did you serve during the 2020 campaign? I understand that you did play a role.
1: Um, you know, I I, I usually uh, volunteer. I don't have uh, a job. I don't want a job in a campaign. I want to be able to tell the media and the folks what is that, why Hispanics uh, should not be labeled in one way or another. Um, I, I don't like labels. And as you know, you hear many times, well, minorities are all Democrats or Hispanic are all Democrats. Well, not necessarily. We'll, we all have our own minds and our own ideas. And so I told a lot of stories. I, may, I did probably over 700 interviews during the past two and a half years.
0: So why do you think people, some people at least, are so confused that Latinos are not in one party and and where do you see opportunities more importantly where do you see opportunities for the GOP to retain Latino voters Hispanic voters or even gain in the next presidential election
1: I think that the reason that you see the Hispanic voters going the way they do is uh, for what I told you at the beginning it has to do with uh, jobs, opportunity to do business, less regulations. I don't think that Hispanics are that involved in politics because we're very busy working, just like the African-American community is. You know, we're just working people. Whoever makes it easy for us to achieve our goals, I think that, or whoever looks more like we, like we do, we're going to be more attuned to be in that party. I believe that uh, the path that we were this past four years was a good path of inclusion in every area, in the Asian community, the African-American community, the Hispanic community.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Hispanics are very diverse. We have Black, Chinese, Jews, you call it Lebanese. You know, when you look at my DNA, it's almost funny. My husband said, oh, my gosh, you have American uh, um, what, what is it called? Native American. How could you be? And I said, Cubans are from America. You know, so uh, that's what we are. We're just like everybody else.
0: Yeah. And and how do you feel at this point? Um, President Trump never officially conceded the election. Um, most Republicans, but not all, believe that he lost um and there was the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. As a Republican, how how are you processing all of the events of the end of the Trump presidency? And do you think that January 6th, for example, harmed the party?
1: Well, uh, Farai, I, I do think that January 6th harmed the party, uh, not the Republican Party, but it it harmed those people that. Um, worked very hard in president's campaign like I did. Um, I didn't agree with what happened. I don't agree with any kind of this kind of a behavior. Um, it was sad that the other 300,000 people that were peacefully demonstrating were overlooked and that most people did not know that they were even there. So I believe in peaceful protesting. I I, I don't even know who those crazy people were. When President Trump was elected and I went to the swearing-in ceremony uh, four years ago, I remember walking down a street, and I actually have a picture of this, and I was in the middle of a mob of people dressed in black. They looked like ninjas, and they had arms in their hands, uh, bats. And uh, I found myself in the middle of that crowd, and, which was similar to the crazy crowd that went into the Capitol, And uh, they were not really people that I knew. A lot of them had accents that were different than mine. They were hateful. And I I don't believe that Hispanics or anybody would agree with that, no? So I think that left uh, a big dent in our country. I definitely, you
0: know, uh, uh, very much appreciate what you said. I will say, though, that the the people who went into the Capitol on the 6th, some, some of them wanted to kill Vice President Pence, who is definitely not a Democrat. I mean, this is pushing the envelope of what politics are to the outer edges. And do you think that the Republican Party at this point needs to make um, a, an internal stand on what is acceptable and what's not, including people like uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, who has called for violence at times. I mean, do, do you think that the Republican Party now, in order to keep including people like you who appreciate peaceful protest, has to be very firm about violence?
1: I think that I can turn that back at you and say, do you think the Democratic Party has to be very firm with the people in Wisconsin in a- Oregon and and all those places. Absolutely, they both have to, because this is an American issue. I wouldn't consider this a party issue.
0: I respectfully take your point. I do think that there has been some debate within uh, Congress about whether or not to censure members who have called for violence. I mean, actual members of Congress who have called for violence. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have these different wings. You know, sometimes I describe them as the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing and the Nancy Pelosi wing. And in the Republican Party, um, you might think of it as the Mitt Romney wing and the Ted Cruz wing or, you know, there's there's different things Um, How would you describe yourself just in terms of like, what is your favorite politician right now? Um, Not including President Trump. I don't know if he would have been, but someone who's in an office holder right now.
1: First of all, I think that there is an in-between those two groups of people, those four groups of people that you've said. Mm So um, Ocasio-Cortez or Nancy Pelosi are extremes in the middle of that. There are many Democrats that I could live with. And the same thing in the Republican Party. You know, I was one time a friend of Mitt Romney's and I never could vote for him again. So and I could never vote for the crazies either. So, you know, there is a middle ground in here of people like me that are that are that are just business people want to do business, want to live in a good country that is secure. Those those are the people that I would that I would work with. I like Mike Pompeo a lot. I like Nikki Haley. Now, these are not people that are elected today. Um, I work a lot Mm -hmm. with the Republican Governors Association. My governor in the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is doing a very good job. That's what I believe. I believe that we've done a good job this past four years and that we need to continue to do a good job uh, with electing people that are that kind of people. In fact, in Orlando, where I live. We had a fabulous cadre of Hispanic candidates, uh, but very conservative uh, candidates. We had a friend of mine, Maria Alvira Salazar, got elected in Miami. I would love to have a Republican woman also at the highest office. Salazar would be fantastic. So I'm, you know, I'm very hopeful of the future. Thank you, Bertica. Thank you, Farai.
0: That was Bertika Cabrera Morris, a Florida businesswoman and long-standing Republican voter and organizer. Every week, we invite you to participate in the creation of the show by calling into the Speak Line. We've been asking you, how have your priorities changed since the start of the pandemic? This is what one listener had to say about the end of the work commute. I realized
3: how much I truly cherish being connected to the outdoors, having a view of birds in my backyard and with my cats at home, I'm calmer if less of my time is spent during the day just trying to get somewhere. So my priorities have shifted in that I really want my life to have more time where I don't have to spend like traveling to and from work.
0: Our number is 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. You just heard from a Cuban-American about what she envisions for the future of the Republican Party. And now I'd like to add some more context to the idea of the Hispanic Republican. That's the title of Geraldo Cadava's latest book. Cadava is professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern University. He says that in every election since 1972, about a third of Hispanic voters have voted for Republican candidates.
4: More Cuban Americans have voted for Republicans than members of other Latino groups. In recent years, I think Venezuelans have gotten a lot of attention as well. In this most recent election, Colombian Americans uh, voted for Trump at greater rates than others. But I wouldn't want to say that only Cubans, Venezuelans, Colombians have been loyal Republicans. The truth is, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans have also voted for Republicans in significant numbers also for the past 40 or 50 years. And it's been for a range of reasons, um, including religious freedom, and that's not just the politics of abortion, but also uh, religious liberties and the inclusion of prayer in schools and the general blurring of religious and public life. Also, a kind of pro- capitalist outlook and anti-socialism. And these have been issues not just in this election, but really for the past 40 or 50 years as well.
0: Part of the GOP's recruitment of Latino voters, of course, involves race and race relations. Cadava says he often hears Hispanic Republicans talk about their Spanish identity.
4: For a long time, Latino studies scholars have talked about how and have noted how an affinity for Spanish identity was a kind of affiliation with whiteness as opposed to indigeneity or blackness. And, you know, there are ways in which that played out in the Latino community over the years. And um, the Republican Party also kind of fed divisions between African-Americans and Latinos by arguing that the Democratic Party had reached out to African-Americans and catered to their civil rights interests, and the Democrats were the party that represented African-Americans, whereas the Republican Party was going to represent Hispanic interests. And, you know, not all of those things are connected directly to whiteness, but there was a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy used by the Republican Party to separate Hispanics from African-Americans.
0: In the last general election, that's November 2020, Latinos helped deliver wins for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in states like Arizona, Wisconsin, and Michigan. But that's not the whole story.
4: The greater surprise, I think, this time was that Donald Trump also won a greater number of votes in 2020 compared to 2016. Not just a greater number, but also a greater percentage. As to why Trump improved his performance not only in South Florida, but also South Texas and then even states where he didn't make a great effort or counties where he didn't make a a great effort like uh, New York and the Bronx and where Chicago is and where Los Angeles is. I think there are a lot of theories. And, um, you know, we we don't really know, but I think that's what we're going to have to explore.
0: Cadava says Latino conservatives are optimistic about the reach of their message.
4: The conservatives that I've interviewed, they would like to believe that conservatism among Latinos is just on the rise and that newcomers are more conservative than previous waves of newcomers. And they would like to believe that Democrats just fundamentally misunderstand the motivations and ambitions of recent immigrants. And they say that Latino immigrants don't want to be, or Latin American immigrants, I should say, don't want to be kind of lumped in together with all other Latinos as, uh, you know, an American minority group. Other theories have to do with how Latinos were kind of alienated by Um, you know, the the quote-unquote radical left and the identity politics of Democrats and the idea that Latinos only care about immigration and Democrats didn't make much of an effort to reach out to them early on in the election cycle. So another theory of how Trump did better is that Democrats themselves didn't really engage or reach out to them early enough. So, you know, the truth is probably a combination of all of these things.
0: Geraldo Cadava is author of The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Over the past few weeks, virus cases in the U.S. have been falling faster than at any point in the pandemic. That's partly because an estimated 100 million Americans have already had COVID. Unchecked spread is dangerous. At least three variants are already loose and spreading, and they appear to be more contagious. They may
2: also pose another problem. We're seeing that if you have had a prior infection with coronavirus earlier during the pandemic, that immune response is not protective against the South Africa and Brazil strains, and there may also be reduced protection from the vaccines. That's
0: Dr. Celine Gounder, a practicing infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and Bellevue Hospital. She also served on the Biden-Harris Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board during the transition period.
2: Welcome, Dr. Gounder. It's great to be here, Fry.
0: I'm going to just jump straight into this. I was pleasantly surprised, close to pleasantly shocked that I got a vaccine appointment with all of my stats. I'm 51 and a half. I'm Black. I'm overweight. All of those may or may not have played into it for, you know, later this winter. And I do wonder how I was prioritized and if it was Correct. Um, I can't help but think about all of the reports I've been reading about how wealthier and whiter groups of Americans are going to lower income neighborhoods with Black people and other people of color, undermining efforts to reach people who have been hardest hit by COVID. So what is the scope of the problem and what can be done?
2: I think one aspect of this that people have underestimated is how complicated it is to figure out who is "quote unquote" higher priority than another. Um, for example, the New York Times just ran um, an editorial about we should prioritize giving vaccines to people um, in a zip code for people from that zip code, and. While that sounds like that makes a lot of sense, you have to then look at what are the systems in place to actually allow for that. And one of the big disasters, frankly, of this past year and and even longer term is how little has been invested in public health bioinformatics. So this is the tech systems that allows you to register people, to call people for an appointment, to schedule people. And if you don't have a system that allows you to have people register according to zip code, how are you then going to be able to prioritize people based on that? So what we have to understand is we are working with very archaic, rudimentary systems. This is why in Florida, for example, people were resorting to using Eventbrite and SurveyMonkey to schedule appointments. This speaks to how bad the tech systems are in public health.
0: Given... The informatics issues you mentioned. What's what are the solutions available now? Because we're still at the beginning of the rollout.
2: So you know, I think this is where we do have to have some measures in place. For example, having community health workers who would reach out to the community, register people in the system, um, go door to door, go to the workplaces where they're at. Um, in a sense, what I'm proposing is a, a bit of a hybrid between what Baltimore is doing, where they've hired up a Baltimore Health Corps of, of people um, to to do contact tracing, but also now to help with, with some of the vaccination registration and rollout. And then also what um, Harris County, so Houston, um, has proposed, which is getting people registered, but then you are randomized um sort of in tiers based on your priority as to when you'll actually get an appointment, when you get scheduled. Um, So there are attempts like that being made um, to try to be more equitable. I, I do think this is a situation where we need to step back and also say, Gosh, you know, we have allowed our public health systems to languish for decades now. Um, I've even seen some public health departments that have DOS-based systems, if you can believe it, for their tech. You have some... Yeah, DOS
0: being an early computer programming uh, system, like very early.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like for people who weren't born yet. Um, Exactly. You know, and... and you have some health jurisdictions that have one public health nurse. So it really means that we need to invest in public health and not just health care, um, understanding that that is how you a- achieve more equitable health outcomes for everyone.
0: Um, this is not a medical question, but how do we keep our hope up? I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I am bored out of my mind. I'm staying the course to try to stay healthy, but this is the time where, especially if you're really a bit skeptical of um, the the preventative work that you can do yourself and washing your hands and wearing a mask and distancing from people, that it's kind of hard to keep up the resolve. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, You know, and I think for those of us who work in the hospital, who work in other settings where we see this every day, where we saw the surge after Thanksgiving, where we saw the surge after Christmas and New Year's, you know, I think we are tearing our hair out, um, frustrated with the situation. Um, And for people who are sort of at home, in bubbles, uh, insulated from what is happening inside the hospital, what is happening in, in other settings like that, I think it, there's this bizarre disconnect, you could say, as to what reality is. Um, and I'm not really sure how to bridge that. You know, I, I might say, well, go volunteer in a hospital and, and see it firsthand, but that's obviously yeah. dangerous, you know. So I think that's a difficult one. Um
0: It's a it's a question of privilege, you know, I mean, and and I am speaking from my privilege as a stay at home worker for whom boredom is even possible, you know?
2: Yeah. uh, Yeah. I I wish I could be bored. (laughs) You know, I I, I wish
0: I could be bored. I think that's more than fair. And so what is the status of trust building between the public and healthcare and science professionals and how do we rebuild some of this trust?
2: Yeah, I think, unfortunately, this past year there's been tremendous damage done, and I think that is going to take time um, to rebuild. I do think some important steps have been taken. Um, The communication from the U.S. government is now being led by— Scientists and experts. It's not going to be led by politicians, by people with a political axe to grind or agenda. You do need to have people um, who are trusted in a community be the ones communicating to that community. But I do think what we are seeing in many instances is a lot of fear and lack of trust in the system. And you can't bulldoze through that lack of trust, you, you know, no matter how many trusted messengers you enlist, you actually need to change the system. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about underinvestment in public health. You need to make those investments.
0: Well, Dr. Gounder, thank you so much for your wisdom. It's great to be here. Dr. Gounder is also the host and producer of American Diagnosis, a podcast on health and social justice. It's award season, so I brought back Casey Mendoza, our business of entertainment contributor, to talk to us about two big features out now. Regina King has just been nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Director for One Night in Miami, based on a play by Kemp Powers. It tells a fictionalized account of a meeting between four key black figures of the 1960s Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali. Hi, Casey. Hi. Tell us about One Night in Miami.
5: It's a very intimate film. I almost want to call it like a bottle episode because so much of what happens happens in one room. These four men um, really just having a conversation about the nuances of their success and what it means to be um, a Black icon during the 1960s.
0: And what timing, right? Historically, we are in some ways reliving... um, I would. Um, I'll just editorialize the failures of what we as a nation didn't incorporate from what happened in the 1960s.
5: Absolutely, and um, I actually got to go to a Q and A with Regina King and Kemp Powers about this film, and they spoke with such nuance on how relevant this film is today. You know, because the film touches on um, Malcolm X's struggles dealing with the FBI. It asks questions about what it means to be a successful Black entertainer uh, during this time period without pandering to white audiences, but also without turning their back on their um, Black supporters and fans. I haven't seen
0: the film yet. I am so excited to see it. But one of the things uh, is that it's on the streaming platform, Amazon. And what, what do you think will happen to uh, the, the process of judging for awards with so many films being released? You know, even if they might have one drive-in theater here or there effectively on streaming platforms, how does that sort of change the evaluation game?
5: Of course. So obviously 2020 was an unprecedented year for the entertainment world. And so the Academy did change their rules, allowing films that were originally supposed to have theatrical releases. um, Even if they forewent that theatrical release and chose to do a streaming release, instead it would still be eligible for categories like Best Directing, um, Best Picture, etc., so it still has this, like, chance and a huge chance, um, honestly, at getting those nominations and winning those awards, even though it was released on Amazon Prime.
0: And tell us also about MLK FBI, the documentary about Martin Luther King Jr. and how the FBI targeted him. Tell us about that one.
5: Both films are very relevant for this time period. One Night in Miami touched on Malcolm X's, um, the surveillance he faced from the FBI. Uh, The surveillance MLK faced by the FBI is the point of this documentary. And I think it kind of contextualizes the civil rights icon in a way that really shows the struggles that he went through. Um, Because today, you know, we see MLK as this like popular, revered figure in the civil rights movement. But at the time, the documentary really shows how much he was considered an enemy by the US government and also a rather unpopular activist figure among the American people. A 1966 Gallup poll found that only a third of respondents had a positive opinion of Martin Luther King during the 1960s. And I think that's really important to know and realize when we remember him today.
0: And I also understand that uh, the director of MLK FBI is Sam Pollard, who worked on the groundbreaking Eyes on the Prize. So he's so familiar mm-hmm. with the territory. You know, what did you learn from from watching this
5: In the past couple of years, you know, ever since the FBI files on MLK and also other Black activists during the time were released to the public, we've known for the past couple of years the extent to which the U.S. government tried to discredit this movement. But I got to see, you know, in almost this more intimate setting um, or through more personal perspectives, how pervasive it was. You know, the FBI wiretapped King's personal phone calls, bugged his hotel rooms, and even hired you know, informants to keep tabs on who he was meeting with. It was truly a full onslaught of FBI resources. And one of the people they interviewed for this documentary was former director of the FBI, James Comey. He um, was interviewed and he called it the darkest part of the FBI's history simply because of how many resources were like driven to discredit the work of activists during the time.
0: Casey, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks again. Of course. Thank you. That was Casey Mendoza, business of entertainment contributor and reporter at Newsy. Now it's time for Sipping the Political Tea, our weekly roundtable covering all things politics and the news. This week, our contributors are Aaron Haynes, editor at large of the 19th, and Tiffany Jeffers, professor at Georgetown Law and our body politic legal analyst. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Farai. It's so nice to be back. It's great to have you, and hi,
3: Aaron. Hey, better to be heard than seen, I guess, these days. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so look, the halls of Congress were a flutter this past week, to say the least. Uh, but for I wonder what, what struck you about what you saw in Congress this week.
0: I was really struck by uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Instagram Live about the siege of the Capitol and mentioning that she had been a victim of sexual assault in the past and that this had brought up the past. And I thought it was just really courageous how she said that and that also it was disturbing that she had to reconnect people to her humanity and her vulnerability in order to say how horrible the siege was. I mean, we should at this point take it at face value that the siege was something where People were trying to kill then-Vice President Mike Pence, let alone Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This was not just a partisan um, peril. This was a bipartisan peril. And now some people are trying to paper over that. So I thought that was really an important moment. Tiffany, I want to bring
3: you in here. Uh, you know, right after the January 6th insurrection, Congresswoman Cory Bush was among the first to call for sanctioning some of her colleagues uh, for their participation, possibly involvement in the events of that day. There were colleagues of hers, uh, Republican colleagues, who had participated in the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election in a House resolution, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Tiffany, I'm wondering if you think there's some legal precedent for this kind of resolution.
6: There's absolutely legal precedent for this type of resolution, Aaron, and it's important that we sort of break down the structure of the resolution itself. Initially, it's a call for an investigation into the events that predicated this this attack on uh, the Capitol, and that's simply an investigation. Now, incorporated within the resolution is a request if there is a finding for sanctions, including uh, expelling uh, members that, in fact, did if if they're found to have, violated their oath of office. Um, And so the precedent comes in historically from members of both the Senate and the House of Representatives during the Civil War time, and they were expelled for disloyalty to the union. It's a small number of individuals, I think 15 total between both houses that have actually been expelled as the highest form of sanction. Um, I think... Aaron, there's an argument here to be made, a correlation between attempting to overturn election results as a direct undermining of democracy, specifically because there's no evidence that's been substantiated that there was voter fraud. It's not that Representative Bush is indicating that the request to investigate voter fraud is in and of itself a violation of oath. It's that the investigation was complete. The cases were filed. The courts have ruled. And yet these Congress people still move forward with these unsubstantiated claims without evidence of voter fraud. And it, it's a continual d- undermining of democracy. And so, again, I think there can be a correlation between the undermining of democracy here, similar to the complete disbandment of the union by starting a new confederacy
3: during the time of the Civil War. Tiffany, you're making such good points here. And, and as we kind of evaluate the state of our union uh, in this moment, uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris are talking about healing and unity in this country. But, but there are folks like uh, Congresswoman Bush who are saying that that doesn't happen without accountability. Right. And, and just the idea of trying to get to a shared set of facts, uh, uh, you know, an investigation uh, would be something uh, that, that may go a long way to doing that. Uh, So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ended up giving an office reassignment to to Representative Bush. And, And let's just play a clip here from MSNBC's The Readout of Congresswoman Bush explaining why she changed the location of her office.
6: I moved my office because I am here to do a job for the people of St. Louis. They deserve that. And what I cannot do is continue to look over my shoulder, wondering if a white supremacist in Congress by by the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene or anyone else, because there are others, that they are doing something or conspiring against us.
3: So Congresswoman Taylor Greene has not been shy about her belief in QAnon conspiracies. And yet Republicans applauded her on the floor of the House on Wednesday. And House GOP members were threatening to remove Representative Ilhan Omar. Farai, I want to come to you and ask, what is going on in the halls of Congress?
0: You know, there was a lot of internal scrutiny of the Republican Party externally, and then definitely discussions internally about what they should do about Marjorie Taylor Greene, a representative who has espoused violence and supported QAnon. And she basically, uh, in front of her Republican Party members, made a case that she no longer believed in QAnon and that she disavowed her past statements, you know, and these have been some very strong statements. And now the Democrats are left to consider what their options are for housekeeping and moving ahead with those those options. But um, the Republican Party has decided that they will not censure her. And I think that this has a lot to do with Trumpism's Strong support, and so um, by not standing up to Representative uh, Taylor Green, what signals is the party sending? That's you know that's the state of play based on what happened on Wednesday.
3: Farai, might this be the end of the GOP as we know it? I mean, I think we're we're in a moment where you have a lot of Americans that are questioning, uh, you know, where they stand with with this Republican Party, given everything we've seen. There are now reports that a record number of Americans have left the Republican Party. Leavers who were horrified by the insurrection and leavers who felt GOP leadership didn't support President Trump enough.
0: So we did see a small number of people, single-digit thousands, transferring away their registration away from the Republican Party after the election. And there's no other reason for people to switch parties right after an election unless they are dismayed by what their party is doing. There is no election that happens like the day after, but these were people who clearly were like, I've got to make a change, and I am going to be really interested to see in subsequent races people who abstain from voting, who had been loyal Republicans, because essentially what happened during the the Roy Moore-Doug Jones contest, where Moore was accused of stalking teenage girls at the mall for sexually inappropriate reasons, white evangelical Christian voting went down. It, it wasn't that people switched parties and voted for Jones. They simply stayed away from a race where there were too many conflicts with their values. And I think some centrist Republicans are really having a values conflict, um, but they also aren't in control of the party right now.
3: Yeah. Uh, Tiffany, let me come to you to ask, I mean, are there precedents in U.S. history for this kind of split in a political party?
6: I don't know that there are precedents in U.S. history for a split, but I, I certainly think an ideological shift has occurred multiple times over U.S. history. And again, going back to the Civil War, during the Reconstruction period, Those efforts of uh, attempted reunification and compromise led to the beginnings of party shifting of what in the 50s and 60s became Southern Democrats transitioning from that Republican Party ideological base to the Republicans that we know today. So there are times of ideological shift. I don't know whether people actually leave their party or whether the, the party base uh, just begins to transform their particular uh, sort of the mechanisms they believe are institutionally important to govern themselves as as citizens of this country.
3: Yeah. President Biden ran a campaign, you know, starting to say this is not who we are, but, but really by the end questioning uh, if this is who we want to be. And I think that that could be a moment where white Americans, particularly Republicans, um, are really reckoning. Uh, with those kinds of identity politics. And, and so I think, uh, you know, as journalists, it's imperative on us to continue to cover uh, how that uh, unfolds and, and what that looks like as, as people wrestle with some of the issues that, that both of you raise. Uh, so Farai, you mentioned uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Instagram live retelling of her ordeal during the insurrection. So let's just circle back to that uh, a bit. We've got a clip that uh, I want to play here and then we'll talk about it on the other side.
5: The response in the last three, four weeks is we did the right thing. I would do it again. And so if that is your stance, then that means they continue to be a danger to their colleagues. Because what they are saying is, given those same conditions, I will choose to endanger my colleagues again for political gain.
3: Farai, what can be done to keep our legislators safe moving forward?
0: Well, one of the things that's happening right now is that uh, General Russell Honore, who um, took military command of New Orleans after the levees uh, ruptured after Katrina, very principled and well-respected in many different parts of society, was brought on to investigate the Capitol Police, and that investigation is ongoing. Um, and, and I don't know the exact terms of the investigation, but what we heard— with Representative Maxine Waters when she came on the air is that she specifically queried the Capitol Police about how people were being kept safe and got sort of vague reassurances, and then everything went to heck. And... During the siege, uh, she actually called up the head of the Capitol Police, who later resigned and was like, what's going on? You said we'd be safe. So I think that there's a lot happening in terms of that. But the question of, is the call coming from inside the House? Are people inside Congress um, actually part of the narrative of the siege? What needs to happen to keep people safe is— a thorough reckoning, a thorough fact-filled reckoning of who was complicit and who incited people.
3: Yeah. Tiffany, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? And and what other legal means might there be to ensure safety in the halls of Congress?
6: So I actually agree with every one of Farai's points. But on a more practical level, legally speaking, I think it's important moving forward to really consider something that's been on the table for Democrats for a while, which is D.C. statehood, allowing Residents and legislators of D.C. to govern themselves and protect themselves um, by, number one, just having the authority for local D.C. government officials to activate the National Guard in times of emergency would be one very practical step uh, in ensuring
3: the security of the Capitol building and and just overall residents in D.C., Absolutely. And it's something that was brought up early and in the wake of, of this insurrection uh, with this new Congress. And so uh, it is interesting to note that uh, many leading the calls for accountability are black women and women of color. And again, I think this just speaks to uh, the record number of women, the record number of women of color in Congress and, and perhaps what may be seen as, as as the power of strength in numbers. The former president is being charged with incitement of insurrection. His lawyers are arguing that his speech is protected by the First Amendment. Tiffany, I want to ask you, is former President Trump, in fact, protected by the First Amendment? Donald Trump is not protected by the First
6: Amendment. You know, he's arguing this 1969 Supreme Court case entitled Bradenburg versus Ohio. What we saw prior to this 1969 Supreme Court case was the clear and present danger standard. So speech that caused a clear and present danger was not protected by the First Amendment. And the 1969 bradenburg decision narrowed that scope, breaking that rule down into two parts. The speech has to incite imminent lawlessness, and we know imminent means current, uh, and that speech has to actually likely achieve that result. So when we think about Donald Trump's remarks and tweets days before the incitement and the day of the actual insurrection, he said statements like, quote, they're not taking this White House. We're going to have to fight like hell, end quote. Quote, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, end quote. So in his remarks on the day of the insurrection, he he directed protesters to walk to the Capitol and, quote, stop the steal, end quote. Those are just a few of the statements that House managers are arguing are the incitement uh, speech that led to the actual, uh, and actually achieved the result of the insurrection, Um, And so I I think the evidence supports the argument that there's no First Amendment protection for this speech. uh, But Trump's defense team really only has to convince one third of senators uh, that are present for the vote that that this is a viable
3: defense. So, you know, we'll see what happens at the trial. Well, thank you for clearing that up because I did not go to law school. Uh, (laughs) Even though he's out of office, former President Trump's unproven assertion of widespread voter fraud has now spawned over 100 bills across 28 states that restrict voting rights. That's according to the Brennan Center for Justice. Tiffany, what's the state of voting rights across the country today?
6: Erin, voting rights are in a very precarious position right now. I am I'm very concerned, um, especially as a black woman. I read Carol Anderson's One Person, No Mm -hmm. Vote, and she really lays the foundation for how Republicans have systematically dismantled uh, and disenfranchised voters. It culminated in 2013 with the SCOTUS decision, the Supreme Court decision that completely dismantled the 1964 Voting Rights Act. So these bills are attacking uh, absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, uh, trying to Increase voter ID laws and signature laws. And it, it's really just a tool to disenfranchise black, brown, and indigenous voters. Um, but what's set in place is that during his presidency, Donald Trump appointed 234 federal judges. And so if these bills are passed by state legislatures, these judges are the individuals who will be determining the constitutionality of these particular pieces of legislation. And without the teeth of the Voting Rights Act, there's there's a very real possibility that the gains progressives have made are going to be completely undone um, and more people will will continue to be systematically disenfranchised. And I'm really concerned.
0: And I would just jump in to say that I think that one thing that we have to keep an eye on is the unpaid civic labor that it takes for. Black people and people of color to vote, which includes the time spent waiting in line instead of earning a paycheck. There was an incident um, during the, the last election cycle in 2020 where a bunch of Black people were basically districted out of one district that had ample voting facilities and districted into a majority Black district that was already overburdened. Like, this is some gangsta stuff. And people who hold positions that may seem relatively low key or obscure can end up making decisions that add to the time and effort it takes for black people and Latinos and for working class and lower income people to vote um, because privilege follows power. And um, I'm keeping an eye on things like that.
3: Yeah, well, I absolutely am doing the same as somebody who works for a newsroom named for the 19th Amendment, uh, and and we know that that uh, there was privilege and power at work uh, in that moment, even as uh, millions of women were, were enfranchised, there were there were millions of women who were also excluded from the franchise. And so this is something, uh, you know, voting, uh, unfortunately, for women of color uh, in particular, it's something that we have to stay vigilant uh, about. And uh, we know that elections have consequences, and this is some of the clearest proof of, of what those consequences are. Uh, but but I know that, um, you know, all of us are, you know, continuing to pay attention to, to how this is going to, Play out and how effective, uh, you know, these efforts at, at frankly, what is 21st century voter suppression could be. So uh, yeah, that seems like a good place for us to end. Uh, and so with that, Tiffany, I want to thank you for joining us this week. Thanks, Aaron. And for I, you know, it's always a pleasure to sip the political tea with you.
0: Oh, Aaron, fabulous as ever. Thank you. That was Aaron Haynes of the 19th and Tiffany Jeffers of Georgetown Law. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Sarah McClure, and Kojin Tashiro.
3: Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing
5: work.